Today I want to look at Sometimes I Fail to Worship. As I read the Christmas stories in the four Gospels, I realize how much emphasis is placed on worship. Worship as a response to what God is doing. Worship because of how God is touching people's lives and changing them forever. Worship because people are becoming involved in the supernatural and experiencing miracles, seeing signs and wonders. Worship that is both heavenly, the angels singing, and earthly, such as when the wise men kneel before the Christ child and worship him. And I noticed the times when the response to what God was doing or Jesus was saying seems to fall short of worship, or even a recorded response at all. In Matthew 11, verses 28 and 29, Jesus says, Let me teach you. And there's no apparent response. Wow. In my mind, I would be saying, you bet, let's go for it. Notebook and pen are at the ready. Bible open. In my studies this week, I came across a passage in the Bible that spoke of what Jesus was doing and how the people who saw it were amazed and broke into praise and worship. So we're reading from Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, verses 29 to 31, and I'm using today, I'm using the New International Version. Matthew 15, starting at verse 29. Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. Aha! They worshipped God and thanked and praised him for what was happening to them personally. And they praised God for all he was doing, even if it was for others and not for them personally. However, here and in many other places, you would wish that the New Testament writers had been a bit more descriptive. This is one of those times. Did you see the, the phrase, and he healed them? Seems too short a phrase to describe what must have been an astonishing sight. When we read the scriptures, we need to use a little bit of sanctified imagination. We need to let our imagination go and picture the scene in our mind's eye, entering into the story with our heart, our feelings, our emotions. For example, can you visualize the blind husband seeing his wife for the first time? His eyes gazing into her tear-filled eyes as if she were the queen of the morning. Envision the man who had never walked, now walking. Don't you know that he didn't want to sit down? Don't you know that he ran and jumped and did a dance with the kids? This went on for three days. Three days it went on, person after person, mat after mat, crunch, crutch after crutch, smile after smile. There's no record of Jesus preaching or teaching or instructing or even challenging. He just healed. Then Matthew, still the great economizer of words, 
gave us another phrase, one which I wish he would have elaborated on. They praised the God of Israel. I wonder how they did that. I feel more certain of what they didn't do than what they did do. I feel confident that they didn't form a praise committee. I feel confident that they didn't make any robes for a choir. I feel confident that they didn't sit in rows and stare at the back of each other's heads. I feel confident that there was not a worship team with a worship leader. I doubt seriously that they wrote a creed on how they were to praise this Jesus they had never before worshipped. I can't picture them getting into an argument over technicalities. I doubt they felt their praise had to be done indoors. And I know they didn't wait until the Sabbath to do it. In all probability, they just did it, each one in his, his or her own way, with his or, own, or her own heart. They just praised Jesus spontaneously. Perhaps some people came and fell at Jesus' feet. Perhaps some shouted his name. Maybe a few just went up on the hillside, looked into the sky, and smiled. I can picture a mom and dad standing speechless before the healer as they hold their newly healed baby. I can envision a leper staring in awe at the one who took away his terror. And I can imagine throngs of people pushing and shoving, wanting to get close to Jesus, not to request anything or demand anything, but just to say thank you. Perhaps some tried to pay Jesus, but what payment would have been sufficient? Perhaps some tried to acknowledge his gift with their own gift. But what could a person give that would express a heart filled with gratitude, amazement, and worship? All that the people could do was exactly what Matthew said they did. And I quote it. They praised the God of Israel. How they did it? I don't know. However, they did it. They did it. And Jesus was touched, so touched, that he insisted that he and his disciples stay for a meal before they left. Without using the word worship, this passage in Matthew 15 defines it. Worship is when you're aware that what you've been given is far greater than what you can give. Worship is the awareness that when, that were it not for his touch, you'd still be hobbling and hurting, bitter and broken. Worship is the half-glazed expression on the parched face of a desert pilgrim as he discovers that the oasis is not a mirage. Worship is the thank you that refuses to be silenced. We've tried to make a science out of worship. We can't do that. We've managed to make a big business out of worship, and we shouldn't do that. Worship has little to do with the songs we sing, and a lot to do with the heart from which we sing them, the heart from which the words flow. We need to understand that. Worship is a voluntary act of gratitude offered by the saved to the Savior, the kind of gratitude exhibited in the heart of the man born blind, 
And that story you'll find in John's Gospel, chapter 9. John, in his Gospel, introduces this man born blind to us with these words. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. That's verse 1, John chapter 9. This man had never seen a sunrise. Can't tell purple from pink. The disciples fault the family tree. Verse 2, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus replies, neither. Trace his condition back to heaven, not to his family tree. The reason this man was born sightless? So that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's verse 3. Now talk about a thankless role. Selected to suffer. Some sing to God's glory. Some others teach to God's glory. But who wants to be blind for God's glory? Which is tougher? Having the condition or discovering that it was God's idea? The cure proves to be as surprising as the cause. In verse 6 of John 9, it says, Jesus spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes. The world abounds with paintings of Jesus in the arms of Mary, in the Garden of Gethsemane, in the upper room, in the darkened tomb, Jesus touching, Jesus weeping, Jesus laughing, Jesus teaching. But you have never seen a painting, at least I have never seen a painting, of Jesus spitting. Christ smacking his lips a time or two, gathering a mouth of saliva, working up a blob of drool, and letting it go down in the dirt. And then he squats, stirring up a puddle of, who knows, what would you call it? Holy putty? Split, spit therapy? Saliva solution? Whatever the name, he places a fingerful in his palm, and then as calmly as a painter plasters a hole in the wall, Jesus streaks mud miracle on the blind man's eyes. Go wash in the pool of Siloam, Jesus says. That's verse 7. And the blind beggar feels his way to the pool, splashes water on his mud-streaked face, and rubs away the clay. And the result is the first chapter of Genesis, just for him, light where there was darkness. Virgin eyes focus. Fuzzy figures become human beings. And John receives the understatement of the Bible award when he writes, in verse 7, he came back seeing. Don't you want to yell, come on, John, running short of verbs, are we? How about he raced back seeing? Or he danced back seeing. Or he roared back, whooping and hollering and kissing everything he could for the first time seeing. The guy had to be thrilled. And we would love to leave him that way, but in this man's life, he has just stepped out of the frying pan into the fire. Look at the reaction of the neighbors. Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he looks like him. The blind man, now seeing, keeps saying, I am him, I am the one. And these folks don't celebrate, they debate. These folks don't praise and worship the God who heals. 
They have watched this man grope and trip since he was a kid. Verse 20. And you would think that they would rejoice and praise and worship God. But they don't. The Pharisees call him a heretic and cast him out of the synagogue. And the Bible states in John 9, verse 35, in the message version, Jesus heard that they, were th they had thrown him out and went and found him. In case the stable birth wasn't enough, God humbling himself and becoming one with us, one of us, as if three decades of earth, on earth walking and miracle working were insufficient, if there was any doubt regarding God's full-bore devotion, he does things like this. He tracks down a troubled pauper who just got kicked out of the temple for being healed. The beggar lifts up his eyes to look into the face of the one who started all this, and Jesus has one more question for him. Do you believe in the Son of God? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe. That's John chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. John described the final act of the once blind man, and it is the only response you can have when you realize that you're not looking into the face of a man, but you're looking into the face of God himself. He worshipped him. Don't you know he knelt? Don't you think he wept? And how could he keep from wrapping his arms around the waist of the one who gave him sight? He worshipped him. One day when we are finally fully healed and standing in front of our Savior face to face, we will do the same. We will worship him. So today, yesterday, maybe tomorrow, sometimes I fail to worship him. But there will come a day when we have nothing that we can do but worship him. Now, I've said all this to say, number one, we need to be in an attitude of worship because of who God is. Not just worship him when he does something we ask him to do or something that is obviously supernatural in our lives but to worship him also when he does not do what we ask of him and when we don't understand why he's not moving on our behalf. Worship is a decision, not a feeling. Secondly, I've said all of this to say that when we read the scriptures, we need to read slowly and pause to think and to feel. We need to engage our imaginations and step into the story. We need to imagine how the people would have been feeling who were listening to what Jesus was saying and seeing what Jesus was doing. To imagine how they would have understood what they were seeing and hearing. To imagine what they did with what they saw and what they heard. We need to understand that these were real People facing real life. People with thoughts and feelings, families and finances, needs and wants. 
But the third thing I want you to note and why I taught this was when we're reading the scriptures, we need to engage our heart and not just our head. If we do that, we can experience and encounter truth and not just understand it. That would be life-changing. That would be transformational. Number four, we need to ask Jesus to teach us and to show us. When we're reading our Bibles, we need to ask him to bring revelation to our hearts and to our heads and let him open the scriptures to us as he did with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, Jesus says, come to me and learn from me. Well, let's do that. In Luke 24, verse 32, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they said, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And number five, I've said all of this to say we need to do whatever we can, whatever is necessary, to bring life to our Bible reading and our Bible study times. We need to regain a lost dynamic or to experience a dynamic for the first time. And we can use the scriptures as a basis for prayer. We can pray the scriptures. We can use the scriptures as a basis for worship, worshiping as you read and become personally engaged in the stories and the events. We need to regain that dynamic and that excitement and that enthusiasm for Bible reading and Bible study. We need to jump into the words, jump into the actions we're reading about, and let it become a part of who we are. Well, I hope that's been helpful. That's what I've been learning this week, and I thought I would share it with you.